0: I'd like to share with you uh, in our continuation of the Incarnation series, From Then to Now. We started off from up to down. Last week, we talked about from out to in, about a God who connects with us emotionally. And tonight, I'd like to share from then to now. We're going to be talking a little bit about heaven. So let's pray, and uh, we'll get in. Heavenly Father, we bless you so much for an opportunity that we have to gather together and to learn and to grow and to study. And I pray that these words that we learn about and share and discover will truly bless our hearts and our lives and that we will become better followers of you. And as a result of that, more and more of your kingdom, your presence will be experienced here on earth as it is in heaven. I can't thank you enough for my brothers and my sisters who come every week, just for their commitment, for their heart, for their passion, and for this community that's just dedicated to discovering more and learning more. So, God, may your Spirit do that within us, in this place, in this moment. And I pray in your name. Amen. I'm going to read a passage from Colossians, chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There were three things that happened to me this week that was really serendipitous in preparation for this talk that I'd like to share with you. And whenever these things happen, I'm always delighted. So I just want to share what happened To me. The first was a conversation that I had with one of my coworkers about the variety of terminology that religious, specifically Christian people, use. And we use these phrases and these terms. And you know, for those of you who've studied sociology, you know know that each individual tribe has their own terminology, and within that tribe, those words mean something. But outside of the tribe, you're like, what what is that language? So we're gonna see if you're inside the tribe or outside the tribe. And uh, by the way, if you're outside the tribe, we're even more thrilled that you're here. But anyway, backsliding. Christians use a term called backsliding. What does backsliding mean? I know all about that. My, my great-grandfather was a Baptist preacher down in uh, Texas. Oklahoma, and if you backslid, that meant you were trying really hard. But every now and then, you just succumb. To succumb to what? Drinking, probably. Drinking, okay. <laughs> in Christian terms, backsliding means you're probably drinking. At least in your if you're a baptist church if you're in a lutheran church that means you stop drinking. I don't know. It depends on what denomination you're in, but uh, so backsliding has all these different connotations. Bless your heart. Bless your heart. What does this mean? I mean I mean it's <laughs> it, it's meant to be a nice term, but the reality is bless your heart probably means oh you're kind of an idiot. I'm really sorry, you know. Oh, bless your delusional heart. Uh, I don't have to be hateful. I can just say, bless your heart, you know. Bless your heart is one of those terms that somebody does something stupid or does something really idiotic, and you're like, oh, bless his heart. (laughs) This world is not my home. This world is not my home. This is actually a phrase that was made fairly famous through the Billy Graham era of great evangelism. Home, the place where I truly belong, is in this place called heaven, and I'm just traveling through this world. This place is not my home. And so we were having this conversation. The phrase that we used with my coworker was this phrase, well, you have another jewel in your crown. <laughs> and you know what this means. I mean, the sentiment, the very sense of the kind of the denotative definition of this is that you have now done something so wonderful and so good that you've got another jewel in your crown in heaven. But you know, whenever this is used, it's usually meant you're really getting screwed right now. So you have another jewel in your crown in heaven. It's like, really would have been nice if I got something right now, you know, but you have another jewel in your crown later on in heaven. And I remember us having this conversation feeling very much disappointed because this is a phrase that we use or ha- we, we sometimes use for those of us who are inside the tribe to describe that, you know what, you sacrifice your life, you give, you serve, you pour out everything, and very, very Little of all of that work is ever going to be recognized. You're never going to be thanked, but you're going to have a crown in heaven. You're going to have another jewel in that crown. And I remember us having this conversation, and fundamentally we were feeling and sensing that that, while it might be a nice statement, is fundamentally disappointing. It's a way of kind of glossing over the, well, but I. Kind of like somebody to say thank you now, or I'd kind of like somebody to recognize that my work and my efforts are actually being appreciated right here and right now. So that was the first thing that happened. I have this wonderful conversation, and of course, there's plenty of other phrases that tribal language is used, but uh, th- this was the one that came up this week. The other thing that happened is I saw this uh, talk about millennials. Now, if, if, is anybody here born between 1980 and 2000? 1980 and 2000. I had a feeling we have a lot of you. You are known as millennials. According to sociologists, you have been labeled, which is exactly what millennials want to be labeled. You've been labeled the millennial generation. And millennials, there's every single generation, there's been generation X, generation Y, etc. Every single generation goes through this series of scrutinization, you're lazy, you just want to be on your phone all the time, you're all about collaboration and all about feeling, you're really not about work and productivity, et cetera, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And one of the questions that is asked as a result of this talk and doing generational studies is, what is fundamentally the ideal age that you would like to be for the rest of your life? And that what you do is you take a look at the chart. If you are 12 years old, if you ask 12-year-olds, what is the ideal age, they're going to add About five years to the 12. Well, I'd like to be 17. If you ask a 13-year-old, what is the ideal age? They're going to add about a little bit less, 4.67 years. So yeah, I'd like to be about 17. And as you go down this chart, the closer and closer you get to 21, the less and less people say, well, maybe half a year older or or whatever. So this 21 sweet spot. And then what happens? Ask a 23-year-old, 24-year-old, 25-year-old, what is the ideal age? They start subtracting numbers. Oh, and, and then if you ask a 29 year old, what would be the ideal age? Well, I, I wish I was about six years younger. Does anybody recognize this? Anybody feel this? And so what this uh, person was talking about is that there's this kind of ideal age that we would all like to be, and using this kind of statistical information, we start to come to the conclusion that, yeah, 21, this would be the sweet spot, where I don't feel like I want to be any younger, but I don't feel like I want to be any older. And fascinatingly enough, this is exactly why one of the main companies that's doing so well is called Forever 21. Isn't that fascinating? There's this sense that the, this particular age, if I could just hang on to this age for, forever, 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 this would be ideal. This would be the sweet spot. So that was the second thing that happened to me this week. The third thing that happened this week is this. Yeah. Yeah. It. Yeah. Welcome to my latest experiment. This is a big one, the one I've been waiting for all my life. Uh- How many of you know what we're talking about? Yes. October 21, 2015, the date from Back to the Future that they were going into the future happened this Wednesday, was it? Thursday, whatever. It happened this, this particular week. Uh, And this is, of course, a big cultural icon. And here we are now celebrating this iconic movie about time travel. Um, And there's all sorts of things in the news about why did this movie make such an impression. And of course, there's lots of backstory. Really fun stuff if you're into science fiction. And of course, if you're into movies and things like that. And one of the things uh, that I personally believe, um, I might be a little bit too geeky about this, is that truth, fundamental truth, including supernatural truth, transcendent truth, that encompasses all of what we experience will always make its way somehow into popular culture. And so whenever movies like this, and especially the Star Wars movie that's coming out, whenever this stuff comes out, I'm always analyzing stuff like that that, to ask the question, what about that is so captivating to us, and why is it captivating? And one of the things that um, comes out of this film, when you do some cultural analysis, is the idea that sometime in the future, there's this beautiful thing that is happening. And if I could only get there sometime in the future, if I could go and experience that and escape this particular place that I'm in right now, that would be the fundamental, beautiful experience that I would love to live in. So these three things happened to me. Conversation about Christian language, internal, tribal language, uh, this talk about Forever 21, and then, of course, Back to the Future. And the reason why I thought that was so serendipitous for me is because today I'd like to actually talk about heaven. And I'm going to do my best. Uh, I might be overreaching a little bit, especially with, like, Back to the Future. I don't know. You guys will, make, you guys will be the judges of that. But I'd like to use those a little bit as illustrations of what seems to be deeply profound in the teachings of Jesus and in this idea of incarnation. Uh, Remember, we were talking about incarnation as uh, going from up to down, a God that comes into flesh, that experiences what we experience and feels what we feel. And today, what I'd like to share with you is about how not only is the up-to-down movement and the the out-to-the-in movement part of the incarnation, but very much like time travel. The then... The sometime in the future, the thing that we might always be looking forward to, sometime at some distant place and time, is actually coming here. The then is coming to now. And it's bound up in this word heaven, which is also kind of internal Christian tribal language. Now, when you search heaven or when you think of heaven or whenever you use the word heaven in our modern vocabulary, everybody thinks about clouds in the sky or staircases that go up or the pearly gates. And Peter standing there, you know, has some questions for you. Um, (laughs) Sometimes, uh, you know, there's obviously jokes that happen. This is one of my favorites. You know, what is the name of your first pet? Heaven is so ingrained in our culture and especially into religious culture that people actually make bestsellers out of uh, experiences that they say that they've experienced in heaven, whether their near-death experience etc. Uh, critics are often uh, skeptical about it, and I don't want to make any judgments on all of those books. You can read about it yourselves. But this one, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, was actually in the news recently because the boy who gave this testimony actually said that he recanted his entire story, Uh, said he made it all up. You know, he sold millions of books, and the publisher had to retract, and there was this whole big thing. Um, Part of it is because, you know, whenever you write a book about heaven, whenever you write a book about that thing that happens after you die, sometime in the distant future, it's going to sell lots of books. And then, of course, critics uh, were very quick to point out that the author of this book was named Malarkey. So, (laughs) true story. You can look it up. It's a true story. Now, the problem with this is not that there isn't a future. We can discuss and converse all about what does that mean? What does it look like after you die and the after death? And that's a part of our cultural heritage. It's a part of our religious heritage. That's a part of what does it mean to to be people of hope for something in the future? That's absolutely a valid and meritorious conversation. But the problem is, when you take a look at the scriptures, there's actually very little in the biblical narrative about going to heaven when you die. There's very little in the story. Now, I know that might seem strange to you, but I'm going to try to share with you a little bit of the reason why we have interpreted so much of these biblical passages and terms in the ways of going to heaven when you die or sometime in the, in the distant future. Because when you take a look at this story in its original historical context, when you get back into the original frame of reference and the mindset of these authors and the people that were writing these stories, there's something very different going on, much bigger, much more profound than sometime in the distant world. And it all goes back to this guy, Plato. Now, if you weren't here for the first message, I would encourage you to listen to the message from up to down. Very briefly, I shared how Plato was one of the first uh, philosophers, and a whole bunch of them, uh, Greek-era philosophers, Hellenistic philosophers, that started to separate this universe. In other words, there is the physical universe that we see in front of us, but the thing that is mostly real is the universe that exists above it. That would be the non-physical, the transcendent, the idea or the form. We talked about the chair. We talked about how the chair in Platonic thinking is not really real. It's the idea of a chair. Well, if you take that further and extend it into, well, what was Plato's philosophy about humanity? The same concept and the same idea held on in his philosophy. You, every single one of you, are a soul. You're a spirit. You're a soulful being. And you actually existed before you became flesh and bones. And it was a beautiful existence. You were the purest you you could have ever been, without form, without body. And that's what your existence was. And sometime in the space-time continuum, <laughs> sometime in that, something really horrible happened to you. You transmigrated into flesh and bones, and you took on this body, and now we are struggling through having to carry the weight and the burdens of this particular life. And so, that's what happened. But fundamentally, what you're trying to do in this life is actually get out of this body, because you miss your previous existence. Your previous existence, living just as an idea, just as a form, just as a soul, just as a spirit, that was ideal. And so, there's this Day that is coming, and you do it through philosophical work where you shed this grotesque body and you enter back into the spiritual or the metaphysical realm. That's a very quick summary of it. Of course, uh, I'm always quick to say that there's many uh, nuances and a lot of philosophers and a lot of brilliant people that can discuss in much greater detail about all this. But philosophers would call this dualism, separating this universe from that universe, the physical with the spiritual. And the reason why this has captured uh, us so much is because we all experience this physical world is not great. All the time. There's poverty, there's sickness, there's illness, there's war, there's arguments, there's all sorts of things that happen here. And so, as we have entered into flesh and bones, we've entered into chaos. And to, to shed this thing we call a body and enter into a distant world of ideas and forms in the soul, that would be victory. That is the ultimate ideal. <laughs> that is the Platonic hope. And fascinatingly enough, this has actually been captivated by a lot of Christian theology. And I don't have time to go into it. You can look it up yourself. But very early on in the development of Christianity, this idea that up there and somewhere in the spiritual realm, that is more the hope and the goal than what happens here. Theologians call this escapism. Now, I would like to play you a beautiful song. I love David Crowder, by the way. Oh, pay attention to the lyrics of this beautiful gospel song. I'm going to fly away. Someday, out of this place, I'm going to fly away to glory. And Now, it's really, that's very fun and exciting. Now, check out this next verse. Just a few more weary days. Someday, I'm out of here. And that's where I want to go. Someday, somewhere in the future, I want to get out of here. And I hope that that day comes soon and comes quick. Now, again, let me just say this. I love this song. I grew up singing this song. Um, I I would play it here if we wanted to. I'm not against the idea that there is a someday somewhere in the hope. But But again, the question is, how much of that if it captivates us too much, how much of our thinking and our theology and our Christian practice will miss fundamentally what Jesus meant and what he was attempting to do in the incarnation. This escapism, by the way, has made millions and millions of dollars about people thinking about getting out of here and then trying to make some decisions about, okay, this day is going to happen, this day is going to happen, this day is going to happen, and we're out of here. And this happens over and over and over again. There has not been a year that has gone by throughout our history where somebody has not predicted now is the time and we're getting out of here. It makes me think of, you keep using that word. (laughs) I do not think it means what you think it means. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to dig a little bit deeper and ask the question, what does heaven mean, and how is it connected to this phrase, kingdom of God, and what does that have to do with incarnation? In the Hebrew, heaven is the word shemaim. Everybody say shemaim. Now, shemaim is a word that is used to describe fundamentally the skies. It's the thing that is up. To say waters, you would say maim. To say heavens, you would say shemaim. And if you know a little bit of Hebrew, you know that it sounds like the waters that are there. And if you remember in the Genesis story, God splits, there's a firmament that splits the waters that are above from the waters that are below. So in other words, we have the waters that are down here, and then we have the waters that are there, the shamayim. So the word shamayim, or the word heaven in the Hebrew, just simply means the skies. Now, I, I searched this on Bible Gateway and some other passages, look it up. Just type in the word Heaven. And notice how many times, both in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament, the word heaven just simply means up there. It's not actually a descriptor of that celestial place that you're going to be after you die. It just simply means up there. I'll give you an example. And there's hundreds of these. And then Jesus was taken up to heaven, taken up to the skies. It's not a description of that place or that future existence. He ascended into the skies. Uh, And those go on and on. Now, why is that important for us? Let's go back to this verse that we were talking about that we opened up with in Colossians. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood. And if you take a look at the way in which these early writers are talking about this movement, There's something about a reconciliation, a bringing together things that may have been separated, whether in a Platonic philosophical way, whether in an emotional way, a separation of those things, bringing them all together, whether things on earth or things in heaven, things that may have been up there, whatever your concepts, whatever your ideas, whatever, if they're up there and the things that are here, bringing all of this together and ultimately by making peace wholeness, bringing it all together. I know the word peace sometimes means the absence of war. The word shalom in Hebrew means whole, complete. Everything put together, working the way it's supposed to be working. So in this Colossians passage, we have things on earth and things in heaven being reconciled together, coming to the fullness of peace. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then, and then this phrase that is often used to equate heaven, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here. It's right now. And are several other passages uh, like this. For example, many of you know the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And those phrases that are often used to be equated to that celestial shore sometime in the distant future, these passages and hundreds others are pointing to a gospel, a message about Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, communicating that which you hope for then is right here, right now. This is hard for us because the word kingdom is not something that is in our modern understanding. We have a different kind of government. Checks and balances, elections, crazy debates. Uh, We we won't even get into that. So we have that kind of a government here. But back in Jesus' day, the kind of government that existed was an empire. And this phrase, Caesar is Lord, was the government. Whatever Caesar says, goes. And if you are against Caesar by the way, then eh, you're crucified, you're enslaved. It's not going to be good for you. So when Jesus uses the phrase kingdom, he's talking about a kind of existence where God is ruling right here and right now. And to the people that would have first heard these messages, to the people that would have first received these letters, to hear them say, the kingdom of God is right here and right now or even more poignantly, the phrase, Jesus is Lord, would have been an explosive smack in the face of the governmental system that existed. You're telling me that Caesar is not actually in charge here? Or you're telling me that by us following Jesus, by us entering into this movement, Jesus is actually going to rule and to reign right here, right now? That's the punch of these phrases. When we hear the phrase, kingdom of heaven... Oftentimes, we think of that celestial shore. When these people heard the phrase kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, they're thinking Caesar's no longer on the throne. If this movement of Jesus is true, if this movement of Jesus captivates us and we fall into line with the way in which Jesus calls us to live in this world, then Jesus is actually on the throne, not Caesar. And the kingdom, therefore, is about what happens right here right now I teach a class at the school that I'm at and one of the questions that I ask in my Bible class is this one simple question what would it be like what would this world be like if God were running the show what would life be like if it was really true that Jesus were Lord Now, I'm doing a couple things in that question. Number one, I want them to get the definition of Lord. Remember, Lord is Caesar, the guy who's in charge. But what would this world look like if Jesus were Lord? Let me ask you that question. Just ponder it for a moment. We say the phrase, Jesus is Lord. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But let me ask you this question. What would it really look like? What would our political system look like if Jesus were actually Lord? What would our economic system look like? look like if Jesus were actually Lord? What would our international relationships look like if Jesus were actually in charge and he were running the show? What would sickness, death, illness, tragedy look like if Jesus were really running the show? Consider this. What would that look like? What would that be like? And when you take a look at the story, You hear about this Jesus, this God who has been made flesh, healing, rebuking religious leaders and saying, you guys have clearly missed it. Bringing about life, bringing in the outsiders, creating an entirely different system. In the book of Acts, you will read about people selling everything that they have, giving it to the poor so that nobody was in need. That's not a description of what happens later. That's a description of what happens now, if Jesus were Lord. That question alone, you could probably talk about for the rest of your existence, which I hope we do. For now, I just would like to point out, this is what it looks like in my mind. If it was really true that Jesus was reconciling people together, then we as people who follow Jesus, who incarnate that Jesus here, means that we're fighting against anything that separates people right here, right now. If Jesus is healing people, if Jesus is raising people from the dead, if Jesus is addressing the sickness of people, that means we are fighting against all of those illnesses and those diseases right here, right now. If Jesus is welcoming in people who are on the fringes, that means that right here, right now, we are fighting against hunger and poverty. And if Jesus, and I love, I mean, he is the most harsh with the most religious. And if he is that way against people who are in positions of power, who are taking advantage of people who don't have that power, and he's fighting against them, that means that we too, right here, right now, fight against corruption. The incarnation, the idea of the kingdom of God coming here, right here, right now, is about all of these things happening, not then, right now. God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, bringing it all together, right here, right now. Our theology, our beliefs may miss a huge piece of what Jesus was talking about, what these early followers of Jesus were talking about, if we only think about these words as to some time later. We think of the word heaven. Well, that means sometimes I got saved, which means that if I were to die today, I would go to heaven rather than to hell. And I'm so glad that when I get to the end of my life, I will get, go to heaven rather than Go to hell. Grace is that moment where I got forgiven of all my sins, so that I get to go to heaven and not to hell. Forgiveness of all my sins, so I get to go to heaven, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And these words, these beautiful, rich, powerful words, are about what happened right here right now. I hear grace sometimes being used as a cover-up for the guilt that you feel. And if you could just live by grace long enough till you get to the end, then you'll no longer need grace. And in the Bible, when you read about grace, when you read about that beautiful expression, it's not something that you live through. It's not something that just covers over something till the time that you don't need it anymore. Grace is something that you live out of. It exists right here, right now. And my expressions of love, my expressions of fighting injustice, my expressions of hope in this world come out of that grace. Salvation isn't something that is some time later. Salvation means I have victory. It's actually the literal word for salvation in the Hebrew. Victory over the things that empower me right here, right now. Victory over things that, you know, uh, force their power over me or the things that I sometimes succumb to. And forgiveness isn't something that I need in order to get to heaven later. Forgiveness is something that frees and liberates my life right here, right now. All of this happens here. My friends, fundamentally, I don't want to deny the existence of some time later. Please hear me say this. I'm not suggesting that there is no afterlife. I'm not suggesting that there is no quote, "heaven" sometime later. What I am saying is that the fundamental thrust of this biblical narrative, exemplified in the incarnation of a God coming here and a God coming in, is a God also bringing the fullness of that heavenly experience. Whatever it is that we hope for, whatever it is that we see, whatever it is that we long for, all of that right here, right now. And by embracing this Jesus and following in his way, we are fighting hard to bring the fullness of his kingdom right here, right now. Dallas Willard is a philosopher and a theologian who passed away not too long ago, and he sums it this way. The gospel is not about going to heaven after you die. It's about getting into heaven before you die. And that's why the New Testament routinely treats you as if you've already died. You've transitioned from a life on your own to a life that God himself is living in his kingdom that you get to be a part of. And let me just say, in conversations with many of you, I know that many of you are actually living in beautiful expressions of this through your work, through your calling, through your teaching, through the expression of your gifts and your talents. You're bringing justice and hope and peace and reconciliation and love to bear upon this world. And every time you do that, you are exemplifying the incarnation of bringing then to now. So when we talk about jewels in our crown sometime later, this is going to be ultimately disappointing because somehow, some way we know intrinsically that I don't want a jewel in my crown later. I want it right here, right now. Exactly the point. Whatever expression of faith, hope, and love, we want it here, right now. And we shouldn't want to try to get out of here, escape this moment, get to that place really quickly. No. We want to live right here, right now, in this second, in this moment, with as much of the fullness of the kingdom of God in my life individually and in our lives collectively. And if we've ever identified what that existence is, what is that ideal number, what is that ideal state of existence, (laughs) then we will recognize that we actually do want to live forever in that shalom. The peace that God has, of course we've identified it. We know what it looks like, and that's what we work for, and that's what we strive for, that's what we fight for to experience that now. And when we can experience that now, we hang on to it because we have found what the ideal is. And that's from then to now. Lord, thank you for my friends and for our willingness to just wrestle with your word and your existence and your incarnation. Help us to see more and more that together as we link arms, grow and mature in your teaching, we can bring heaven right here to earth right now. I know for many of us that might be a challenge or we still might be uncertain how that's going to work out. But Lord, as we work hard with one another, alongside one another, leveraging all of putting into flesh what you've called us to do, God, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to see and experience more and more of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray in your name. Amen.